This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, we embark on Season 10 of Electric Boogaloo, and my guest is Catherine Ollie. Kate is a research fellow at St. Helens College at University of Oxford. Kate helps me cover Arya's third POV chapter in A Clash of Kings. After that conversation with Kate, I include a short Q&A session with Aaron. Hey, if you're watching The Last of Us, be sure to check in on the Lorehounds. Uh, take a look at their Last of Us podcast. They're doing great coverage over there. All right. Without further ado, here is Dr. Kate Ollie. Kate, are you an Arya fan? Do you like Arya? So I do like her, but I feel like I don't like her as much as other people like her. Um, she's a great character, but if I had to pick a Stark, I would always pick Sansa Stark. And she's sure. always been my, she's been the Stark that I kind of really follow. Um, so I like Arya, but I feel sometimes she falls into those fantasy literature tropes of um, girls who are tomboyish and mm-hmm. ultimately want to fight and do all of that kind of stuff, which is is a, an interesting arc. But I always preferred the kind of, I thought Sansa was in some ways more revolutionary for being um, like a little girl, essentially, you know, she right. makes stupid decisions in Game of Thrones and everything. Whereas Arya is much more clear-sighted, um, sure. and I think that's obviously why some people like her because Sansa drives other people up the wall. But I quite like the realism of Sansa's character. That I think a, a genuine twelve-year-old girl in the Middle Ages probably would have been sometimes that stupid, and right. and Arya is a little bit more wish fulfillment. I always feel interesting. Now, in this chapter, Arya does actually present as a little girl yes which is why i did i did find this chapter rereading it really interesting i mean i think sometimes when i'm reading aria i almost feel like well you had to grow up so fast that you're thinking and acting you know a bit older than you really are but in this chapter i did get the sense that no she's a little girl with little girl concerns chief among her mind is how and where she's going to pee and it's it's a it's a big deal. It's actually yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> to try to conceal your your gender and 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 do that at the same time is a big deal. And then you know just you know she's brave, but she's legitimately afraid of this pack of wolves, and she she's trying to get away from the sounds of suffering. And the I can I in other words in this chapter I feel like she's believably yes, I'd agree. Young, yeah. And I think it shows for all that she's kind of projecting, as you say, this kind of slightly more hardened exterior and she's briefly lived on the streets of King's Landing. She kind of is seeing how sheltered 
she was like she liked to think of herself as not like Sansa and not kind yeah. of interested in feminine girly things but actually she's she's lived at Winterfell she's never seen true suffering she's never been exposed to what she's now being exposed to right let me read my synopsis of the chapter and we can talk a little bit more about it yeah the king's road has narrowed and Yorin's group nears the god's eye they meet fewer people, but more carnage, burnt fields, and ravaged bodies. In one village, Yorin's men find a woman with a dismembered hand and a toddler. The woman survives only a little while longer, and they bury her along the way. One night, Arya sneaks out to pee and is surrounded by a pack of wolves. For some reason, they do not attack, and Arya returns to camp unharmed. After attempting to talk about it with Yorin, she tries to sleep again but she hears wolf howls and maybe voices on the wind. So, Kate, Ollie, what shall we talk about today? Um, yeah, so I, I think gender was a really strong theme in this chapter, kind of, you know, Aya's traveling, pretending to be a boy with a group of, of men and boys going to the Night's Watch. But we have these two female characters, the the little girl and the woman who's lost her hand. Right. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting kind of the the tension there between um the the male group that she's traveling with and then the sort of specter of female helplessness that sort of haunts her in the chapter and she says you know at the end she says to Yora that she or so she sort of thinks to herself that she she felt she's just a little girl after all and yeah. she sort of seems to be kind of haunted by the the idea of of having to yeah be a little girl, of having to be as helpless as the toddler or as helpless as the woman who loses a hand, even as she's projecting obviously a um, an idea of of masculinity as she pretends to be a boy who's joining joining the Night's Watch. So I think that for me was kind of the key sort of struggle of the chapter from Aya's perspective. Um, and then we could talk a little bit also perhaps about the larger pacing. I mean, it comes between a Tyrion chapter and a Davos chapter, two oh, quite interesting. political, you know, yes. advisors to kings. And then suddenly here we are on the king's mm -hmm. road with, with a bunch of really ordinary people. Yes. And I think that there's something about, and I don't know, I don't know if other authors do this quite as well as Martin, but I, I do get the sense that you see the consequences of war on the ground level. And I think that Martin is almost more interested in the consequence of the battle than the battle itself. Because yes. a lot of these battles and, you know, a lot of these burnings and a lot of these pillagings, um, what happens to the woman with the dismembered hand, that all happens off page. Yeah. And so we're almost seeing what war does to women and children. And um, we, we didn't see sort of the excitement of of the battle that all happens that that gets discussed by the in the devil's chapter that gets discussed in the in the catlin chapter but we do see i guess the carnage of war in very very uh grotesque terms yeah and i i agree i think in some ways as i was reading it it, it reminded me a little bit of brienne's chapters in a feast for crows mm. where again i mean it's it's a slightly different dynamic but again you've got a woman wandering the countryside and just being confronted all the time with yeah the 
as you say, the, the grotesque horrors of war. Mm. Um, and I think in some ways, from a kind of pacing perspective in the books, they're serving similar purposes that between some of these really um, important chapters of, you know, political intrigue or or things that seem to drive the plot forward, Martin's really good at interspersing that with these mm. slower paced, more um, kind of psychological chapters that just fill you with, I mean, this one also is just, so much foreboding you can really feel the tension growing and growing mm. um you know the way it ends with Yorin just kind of unbelieving that you know after 30 years he just he knows he's not making it back to the wall he he knows there's no way they they do this i think so i think he's he really does i mean he's not like a <laughs> he's, not, he's not mr positivity on other, <laughs> no. other pages but he, he goes especially dark in this particular chapter and I almost think it, he almost presents as someone who's almost having a crisis. Um, yes. He he really presents as this true believer of the Night's Watch. Like, he he believes in the value of the, the institution. He knows the history of the institution. He almost presents as someone who's a true believer in the others in this chapter. Yes, when he says, you know, I hope the others get that guy and then he'll be... Yeah, then then I wish the Night's Watch was there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And yet by the end, he feels like something has shifted. He feels like, you know, he's been doing this for 30 years and now he's kind of at a loss. You know, he, he's not, he's not, I, I, do, I don't know why. I don't know why the, 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 this particular chapter doesn't really explain it to us, but he almost presents as someone who's having a crisis of faith. Yeah, I agree. And I think the contrast we see in the previous chapter, he really confronts the gold cloaks and there's, you know, he's brilliant in that encounter. He won't give up Gendry um, and he projects this sense of confidence that Arya is quite, um, you know, inspired yeah. by. And the it's other impressive. men. All, yeah, it's very impressive. And then it it's it's it is just a projection. You can see that from this chapter that, you know, he is he knows that he can't sustain that that ultimately mm-hmm. if people don't respect the night's watch if people don't agree on this idea of neutrality then that neutrality does not defend you so you mentioned earlier about the the woman and the the girl who they i guess you could say rescue from the village i don't know how much of a rescue it is yes <laughs> um what do they, what do you think that they intend to do with these people i think that's kind of, I'm not sure they ever get that far into sort of thinking ahead. Um, I think it's just that sense of, again, Yoren kind of having, you know, he believes in the ideals of the Night's Watch. And and for them, that means you see someone in that kind of distress, you do have to yeah. take them with you. Like that. that's the kind of logical. And I think obviously they, they think they're going to meet more people on the road i think it's the next chapter where they get to the mm-hmm. you know they make for that village and everybody is gone mm-hmm. and so I, I imagine if that village had been functional they would have hoped to kind of leave them there in the yeah. care of, of someone yeah. sure yeah that um makes sense. but i think it's it's a really kind of kind impulse that they just it doesn't really work for them it's not a great plan but they just feel you know, we have to take the survivors because the Night's Watch is the shield that guards the realms of men. You kind of don't, you're not meant to leave people behind. Sure. And I do feel like that Yorin 
is a little bit resentful that here he is, in his view, doing his duty, and no one appreciates it. <laughs> yeah. It's like the people who are guarding the fields are not like holding the the, the Night's Watch in, in mm. high esteem. They don't honor them by offering food or shelter or anything. In fact, that they're ma- they're made to pay for whatever corn that they've taken. Yes, and uh, maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's maybe he's kind of come to the realization that the Night's Watch has kind of outlived the stature that it once had. But I, I mean, it's not like that would be a new. I don't think that that would be a new revelation for him. Maybe he's just feeling it mostly, you know, more acutely here. Yeah, and I think maybe there's also a bit of a north-south divide that even mm. even though the the north is kind of it doesn't believe in the others and it you know the prestige of the night's watch has definitely fallen as John finds out when he gets there. Right. There's still there's still a kind of a greater understanding of it maybe in the north than obviously in King's Landing where it really you know I mean later in a feast for crows when kind of Cersei has her council they're so dismissive of the Night's Watch. They basically see it as a kind of political entity that, mm-hmm. you know, if Jon Snow is going to be head of it, then it must be their enemy because he's, you know, from Stark blood. So I think they haven't maybe fully grasped how politicized King's Landing has become. Right. So much so that, you know, to them, neutrality for the Night's Watch is, is like a joke. They, there's no way that they believe that. The other thing that Yorn says that I found interesting was that Toward the end of the chapter, he almost says, maybe I should have left you in the city. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that 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 same impulse, you know, to guard the the realms of men, uh, I think that that same impulse to bring the woman and child with them is what inspired him to save Arya. Yes. And now that he's on the road and he's sort of in the middle of war-torn Westeros, he he kind of thinks we are in more danger here than we would have been in the city. Everyone else is going to the city. Yes. Maybe I should have left you in the city. And Arya has a little moment where she considers that too. She she recalls this story that old Nan would tell her mm-hmm. about a man who was like trapped in a dungeon with uh, these giants. He tricks the giants. He gets out of the dungeon only to have his blood drink by the others and it's almost like a out of the frying pan into the, yeah, fire, into the fire yeah yeah and i so there is a sense there that she's thinking well i got away from king's landing but now here i am out in the wilderness ready to be murdered by wolves or whatever yes and and i think also what struck me is the frustration because they just can't get anywhere i mean yeah. it's such a slow chapter because they're moving so slowly and it's just emphasized, you know, they just can't make any progress. And even when they do, they're mostly going, um, you know, kind of laterally when they need That's to be right. going more vertically. That's right. That's right. I wanted to ask you a question about a difference between city folk and, you know, kind of farm folk. So Arya has this moment where she realizes she's got something of an advantage over these orphan boys because they are like a fish out of water. They're, they've lived their whole life in, in flea bottom mm-hmm. and they really don't know how to navigate nature. And, you know, I study the, you know, the classical and the, you know, ancient Judea and Palestine and, and whatnot. It, 
in that period, it kind of doesn't matter who you are. Um, almost everyone who has a, a occupation also has a little plot of land that they're farming. But in this chapter, I almost get the sense that there are some people in Flea Bottom who live their whole life in Flea Bottom. And I'm wondering if maybe during the medieval period, we would expect that there would be some city folk who never really spend much time in nature. Can you, I wonder if you could speak to that at all. Yeah, I can try. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not sure I can answer with complete authority. Um, obviously, you know, there are some fairly substantial urban centers in the Middle Ages. And I guess certainly the class of people that Martin's depicting here, you know, the idea of being an orphan, mm-hmm. um, I suppose your options are pretty limited unless you do something maybe like join an army that might take you mm. take you somewhere. Um, and so whilst I think sometimes, you know, medieval people were certainly a lot more mobile than they're sometimes imagined in the kind of popular I guess imagination. That, that's kind of what I was curious about. Like how much traveling yeah. are these people actually doing? I think it, it probably is something that's that's hard to generalize because, you know, people could travel great distances if they felt the urge. I mean, pilgrimage is, is mm. a classic example. You know, it's amazing how far people get um, because they want to go somewhere, somewhere sacred. But equally, I suspect, yes, that there would also have been a type of person that just has no no impetus really to go on that kind of journey um and certainly in terms well, and of there's danger right yeah there's danger you've got to have a, a reason to to be going somewhere um and communities are quite rooted in t- you know rural communities people you know keep on the same land and, and inherit that land and divide that land and i think i think in that sense there's a lot more um you know, continuity, yes, for those kinds of people, because, you know, you're not going to, I think, leave your home without some reasonable impetus. Mm. But then here, obviously, you have the impetus and the impetus is is war. Um, so I'm sure there was also a lot of displacement in the Middle Ages for precisely these kinds of reasons. Right. Yeah, um, sometimes you, are you... <laughs> You don't want to travel, but you have yeah, to, right? but you kind of have to. <laughs> so that's interesting. So I'm wondering, I mean, do you get the sense that King's Landing is kind of modeled after London in a particular era? Yeah, I don't get any, I don't think it's necessarily modeled on a specific city in the way that, you know, Bravos is, is so obviously modeled on Venice. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, equally... It, it could be somewhere like Paris or, or any of the kind of bigger sure. urban centers on, you know, in the European continent. But yeah, I think you certainly get that sense of um, somewhere that is, you know, a, a big urban center. I always, in the books, it never seems, they shot it as somewhere that was quite warm, I feel, in the series. It always feels like King's Landing is pretty toasty. Um, whereas in the books, I never felt like it was somewhere quite as far south as that. I don't know why. Um, the books, it felt to me, yeah, more like a kind of, I don't know, French or, yeah, or I wonder, slightly more northern climate. I wonder if that is because you're seeing King's Landing for the first time through Ned's perspective, who is a creature of the north, right? Yes. And so it just, it, it could just be that it's not freezing cold all the time. And that feels like yes. it's 
(laughs) But some of the dresses the women wear just look absolutely freezing. Um, And in fact, I also feel they kind of changed it. I'm I'm finally watching House of the Dragon um, and I'm only about five episodes in so i've still got the rest to go oh you but, do okay yeah so I'm, I'm really enjoying it but um they have king's landing feels a bit different to me interestingly in house of the dragon and that was one of the things everyone seems more warmly clothed uh, in house of the dragon than they uh-huh. did in game of thrones i don't know why i think that must just be a little um producer kind of quirk of, of how they decided to do particularly servants garbs and things interesting um, interesting i do i I'm curious about a place like Flea Bottom I'm, because some mm. of these boys are from Flea Bottom and it could just be that they're young and so that they, they really have never left. But I do know that there's still places in big cities in the U.S. where you can find people who never leave. You know, you like there there are certain neighborhoods in Boston, certain neighborhoods in uh, New Orleans, where people will grow up within, you know, about a 10 block radius and never leave that that particular area. And maybe that's a modern problem rather than an ancient problem. But I'm wondering, like, folks who live in the slums of a big city, how mobile would they have been? Yeah, I don't know. Um, so Iceland, which is kind of where I'm I sort of primarily work on medieval Iceland. It's a bit different, obviously, because it doesn't um, it doesn't really have many or, or kind of any big urban centers um, for quite a long time. Um, but interestingly, you do get um, so kind of people do. There are vagrants who beg in Icelandic sagas, and they kind of go around from farm to farm um, because there isn't a kind of urban center where you might you know, find it easier to make a living that uh. way. So they are they are constantly on the move, um, you know, kind of looking for shelter and hospitality from people in the different communities. And that's probably a product of the, you know, the, the geography and the way that Iceland is, sure. is organized and settled. Um, but obviously makes, you know, for a very different kind of um, experience for the same kind of class of people. So that's kind of how it, it sort of manifested in Iceland in in an urban center where there are you know more more people you presumably yes wouldn't have to be quite so itinerant as that now streaming only on Disney plus my name is Taylor welcome to the Eras tour experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras tour Swift Vieira's Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Rounding back to this chapter, um, hmm. one thing that I noted in this chapter that I had not seen before, that is, you used, as, you used the word haunted earlier <laughs> in our conversation. Yeah. There's not a lot of dots to connect, but there are a couple. And the first one that's, you know, most notable is that they are getting closer to the God's eye. Mm. And that's supposed to be, it's supposed to be haunted in a way, but it's also supposed to be a a very, almost a thin space. Yes. Where the mystical happens. 
And, you know, it's almost like the veil between this world and the next is is very thin. And so more supernatural possibility is there. And then Martin does this thing from time to time where the wind will represent something. There's twice in this chapter that Arya senses the wind and she thinks she might hear a human voice on the wind. Uh, the, the first passage where she hears this is she she thinks she, she hears this woman saying please on the wind at her funeral. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end of the chapter, she says, um, yet as she lay under her blanket, she could hear the wolves howling. And another sound, fainter, no more than a whisper on the wind that might have been screams. Screams is a is a word that we use of humans usually, right? Mm, yeah. And I so I'm wondering if there's there's something here that maybe is very understated. Sometimes the gods are said to speak on the wind. Um, sometimes, you know, we'll hear. I guess in the later in the show, it's almost like did did Ned hear Bran's voice or did yeah. he just hear the wind? You know, there there is kind of this question about whether or not the wind can carry sort of a supernatural voice. And I'm wondering yes. if, did you pick up on, on this? And what, what do you make no, of it? No, I didn't, but I love the idea of it. Um, I mean, because I think, I, I don't know why we do associate, you know, the wind is often kind of, I assume it's to do with breath, that kind of because of the way that they are similar, the wind kind of resonates for us with an idea of voice. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, wind and like a very ancient concept, and wind and spirit, yes. are interchangeable. Yeah, so I think, I think it's certainly true that Martin does things like that because I'm really interested to know what happens when the winds of winter mm. <laughs> finally comes out, and um, I think it's the Theon chapter that's you know kind of preview from a winds of winter that's in the back of my dance of dragons edition mm-hmm. um is where asher is telling stannis you know um she understands that her brother has to die but please can you kill him in front of the weirwood and not you know um yeah. burn him to death right. give him to the tree i think is what she says um and i that's always i'm always wondering what's going to happen there because theon is so happy in dance with dragons when he thinks he hears his name whispered through through the heart tree that's the word i was looking for the heart tree um which we're kind of led to believe might be bran sort of seeing him and whispering his name and he feels really comforted that the tree and and sort of the gods it represents know know his name and i'm always wondering whether something similar might happen you know if they take him in front of a heart tree to kill him Mm -hmm. um whether yeah again a kind of manifestation of of voice and breath and some kind of some inkling of speech that could be interpreted as of, of the gods or right. um, whether that could happen. Yeah. Asha definitely interprets the wind as sort of the gods speaking. And then of course there is a sense in which these green seers can communicate. Mm. Um, yes. And so, yeah, maybe it is someone like Bran who's, who's, trying to communicate through the the trees and the wind and all of that business. Anyway, I thought that that was interesting because that happens twice in this chapter and then Yeah, no, I think that's really a really lovely 
little detail that I hadn't seen um that yeah she's kind of hearing these things on the wind and 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 also that kind of elision between you know what is human and yeah, and yeah. what is not the inability to tell yeah notable interactions in the chapter um the hold fast briar white we meet for the first time merch we have not heard uh merch's name before um show differences uh, oh, uh, notable departures. I guess the the woman without the hand, she she comes and goes mm-hmm. within the single chapter, which is not the first time that we've had this for Arya's chapter. She she really is becoming acquainted with death on the road. Mm-hmm. And then notable differences between the show and the books. This whole, I would say this entire chapter is not yes. in the show. <laughs> yeah. And uh, with the exception that Arya does have this encounter with the pack of wolves it doesn't quite happen like this although when after she's been to bravos and comes back she does have an encounter with the pack of wolves and when she sort of has that reunion with nemiria I'm finally going home. Come with me. Come with me. Is it the second to last season of the show? I think it is. Yeah, it's yeah, it's after she's killed the phrase, so it must be season yeah, yeah. seven. I think. I, it could be that that's just sort of an homage to this chapter. That's not you. Yeah, I it did. I agree. It struck the same chord with me. I was reading it and I was thinking, this does remind me of that scene where they just kind of stare at each other. Yeah. And then turn away. So let me ask you this: Do you think that that's Nymeria? I mean, it seems like Arya would recognize Nymeria, but it is dark, and what would explain the wolves leaving her be? I think, for me, I think it's probably not Nymeria, because I think she would be kind of noticeably larger, probably. But I I think, for me, what it underlines is there's quite a lot of talk, I think, in the earlier Arya chapters. You know, people mention the wolves are bad, and again, in later books, I think, is it Jamie when he's heading out to River Run and he stops at somewhere and they're all talking about the wolves and and how they've lost, you know, all the livestock to the wolves and everything. And I think for me what this kind of emphasized was a lot of that is, um, you know, kind of human hype, as it were. Like mm-hmm. the wolves themselves are not that dangerous. Like right. apart maybe from Nameria, who I agree could well be a man killer by this point. Um the wolves, you know, wolves are scavengers and they kind of, they exist on the edges. Um, and then what Joran says 
just afterwards is that you know we really need to be worried about the people you know the kind of wolves in human yes, form that's right. that are the real ravagers um and so while they kind of there's a constant talk as if you know the wolves are ravaging everything and and you know the wolves are a big problem you know they pale in comparison mm-hmm. to the human problem and so kind of what she sees is is the reality of kind of they're there and you know they're not exactly yeah gonna get on with you but but actually they're not wantonly destructive in the way that humanity is you know they they just sort of melt away because she's she's not a threat and and they presumably have other prey to hunt yeah are you kind of like Yorn presses her and says, I would have thought your kind would yes. like wolves. And, and she goes yeah. out of her way to say, Numeria was a dire wolf. That's different. Yeah, and that's different. And so clearly the encounter she just had, you get the sense that these are, you know, there were no dire wolves among these, this pack. Yeah, I would agree. I think, and, and the sense, you know, dire wolves are different. They're both more and less dangerous because they're, presumably more kind of intelligent you know so ghost is more dangerous because he can he can target his aggression but they're equally less dangerous because in certain situations they you know they're not they're not regular wolves they won't do things just for kind of the regular wolf reasons of of survival and things so you mentioned this uh before i'm just gonna go ahead and read this is yorn he says the only wolves we got to fear are the ones where man skin like those who done for that village. So yeah, on the surface, I think that absolutely that's what he's saying. He's saying uh, the human problem is the real danger, right? Mm -hmm. And yet he's actually talking to someone who's sort of a wolf wearing manskin. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Because we know that Arya is a warg. And so there might be like a double meaning, like maybe Yorn is speaking better than he knows. Uh, even mm. though his grammar is a little suspect, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I think that he could be saying something that's more wise than than he even understands. Yes, I also think actually now, sorry, just just thinking on it, I think it it's interesting and sort of slightly foreboding. Kind of, she sees a pack of wolves, and the pack moves on without her. Right, and in some sense, I suppose leaves her behind. Kind of looks at her and decides no. And off we go. And this is just before her kind of pack in inverting commas disintegrates. You know, yes. the next chapter is when everything falls apart. And, and you know, it's it's her and Gendry and Hot Pie and, and that's about it, really. Right. Um, and so I think there's almost just a, a sense of, you know, the wolves are together and the wolves are going to survive because they're a pack. And she's she's not, really. She's She's about to enter the most kind of dislocated part of her story so far yeah she she's a wolf without a pack and in other words she's she's been alienated from her family she's been alienated from yeah and she's about to be alienated from her sort of found family along the road yeah um well you know this is one of those chapters that it's really easy to breeze past (laughs) you know (laughs) because i mean you could say not a lot happens yeah and yet sort of the exercise of the close reading a lot kind of bubbles to the surface. Yes. There was just one more thing I did want to mention. Yeah, please. Um, so the little girl that they rescue, um, in the subsequent chapter, they they start calling her Weasel. Um, and then eventually when they get, they get sort of captured, she runs off and we never find out what happens to her. 
Um, but one of the reasons I think Aya is particularly kind of, um, yeah, haunted by the spectre of helplessness is, is because that becomes her pseudonym when she's in Harren Hall. Oh. And I'm guessing that, that that is deliberate. So, I mean, I don't know kind of why she takes that name or, or how, but huh. there is this ever so slight doubling established between them. Um, so, you know, at, at this point, kind of they're looking after Weasel and, and she's, she's kind of cared for and, and I is the one doing the caring, particularly because the little girl has a tendency to kind of hold onto her leg in later chapters. But then later in the book, she takes on that kind of role, you know, she, she becomes, I suppose, in some ways, the helpless little girl she's, she's really afraid of being. Um, So I, I, I did wonder if that was also a little, deliberate nod of things to come yeah i'm i i missed that i i didn't i i had forgotten the whole weasel double name yeah so she has so many names Aya. it's really hard to remember all of her names <laughs> sure sure thing sure thing thank you so much kate i i really appreciate thank it. you would you just mention once more for our readers uh the title of your book yeah so the title of my book is kinship in old norse myth and legend um, and it's yeah an exploration of of what kinship meant for the narratives of medieval Iceland and the myths and legends that it produced. And now throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. Steve, have you ever woken up to a dog staring at you? Yes. Does this happen often? No. If it happens, it usually means I'm about to get peed on. And the only way that you would know that is? Because I woke up to a dog staring at me, and I'm like, what's your problem? And he kept staring at me, and I'm like, what's your problem? And then all of a sudden, I got real, real warm. Jeff W. says, I must admit I'm having a hard time letting go of our wonderful season of House of Dragon. I've recently rewatched episode eight and noticed something that I'd missed in my previous viewings and I went back to see if you address it in your podcast. And I didn't hear it mentioned. After Viserys gives a toast at the final supper, he begins to hallucinate. When I first watched the episode, I remember feeling that some of the behavior of the people was a little out of character. I remember thinking that perhaps they were playing up the fact that they were getting along with one another or simply acting like they were enjoying themselves perhaps more than they actually were. Or even better for Viserys, that they were getting genuine shows of happiness among his family. However, after this viewing, I went through the scene in more detail and realized this isn't the case. After the toast by Rhaenyra and Alicent, when Viserys calls for some music and Jace and Helena start to dance, we see Viserys look around the room. This is where the hallucinations begin. The way it's shot is very clever, relatively subtle. However, if we watch what characters are doing when the camera shows them as opposed to Viserys' view of them, you can see the difference. For example, serving girl pours wine for Rhaenyra, who's looking straight ahead. But what Viserys sees is her and Damon laughing almost raucously. We see Alicent mm-hmm. and Otto leaning in towards one another, smiling, and we get an odd show of Otto smiling and applauding. But then we get the camera view as opposed to Viserys' vision. We see that Otto isn't smiling, and he and Alicent are not leaning in towards one another. The happiness and joy that I thought the family was experiencing prior to the king leaving was not what was actually happening. This was his hallucinations beginning at dinner and probably sets the table, no pun intended, for him uh, to think he's talking to Rhaenyra when in fact he's talking to Alicent in his final moments. Just wondering if you two picked up on this and this didn't mention it or if you had noticed it. 
Uh, so I went back, Jeff, and rewatched this scene. And unfortunately, I'm just not getting what you're laying down. I watched it a couple times actually, um, and tried to rewind a little bit further and tried to. The only real change in tone I saw is when Viserya starts to be in distress and it kind of, you know, devolves. But mm -hmm. I think my interpretation was and remains that this old man, through sheer force of will and pity and love, uh, was able to weld this family together for a minute or two. And then then uh, when he went to succumb to the distress of his illness and, you know, not not being on the poppy uh, escorted from the room, that that magic trick disappeared. And I again, I've I, I don't know, maybe some people grew up in different families, but like I've definitely seen contentious things in families that are wallpapered over for special events, you know, mm -hmm. like the birth of a child mm -hmm. or the death of a parent or. Uh, a holiday or a special occasion or something and and you know you remember all the good times that you've had with these people and you for, for whatever reason everything kind of gets so you everything kind of works and people get along and then the bullshit resumes and so I, I i i thought that's what was happening um did you get a different read anthony mm. I think I might be interested in going and rewatch. I might go rewatch the scene, but my my sense was always like this is what made the fallout so tragic is that they were this close. You know, they if they if he could have just held it together a little bit longer, yeah, uh, this might have been this is might have he might have gotten the dream he always wanted. Maybe, yeah. So I I think that this is sort of um, this works better for me. If they were just this close to reconciliation, and then it all falls apart with the the pig, Amond has brought a pig, and then of course reignites the old rivalries or whatever. Um, it's an interesting take on yeah, it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it definitely makes it more interesting uh, to have that alternate reading. And also, because I, I can kind of sort of see, because there are slight differences in continuity between when they're flipping from, like he says, Viserys's point of view to like the camera point of view, but like. There's a language in cinematography and cinema that you could use to suggest that's happening, and I don't think that's what they were doing. I think it's just like minor differences and and blocking in the point of view. Um, and the other thing is like, I think Viserys was as lucid as he's been in months, if not years, because he swore off the poppy this day so he could settle this right. family business. And when he went back to his bed, he was back on the poppy, which explains why he started, you know, getting things confused and and hallucinating. And, and he had that's this... a good point. The show goes out of our out of its way to tell us he's trying to avoid the pain meds. Yeah, right? like he's he's super sober. Um, so you'd have to say, like, just a sheer pain would cause hallucinations. I don't know if that's 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 a thing. But again, you know, that's the beautiful thing about art. It's all open to interpretation. And if this is something you're seeing, it doesn't mm. matter whether it's intended by the creator or not. It's something you're picking up from it. It's, uh, you know, it's 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 yours to have and to hold. Uh, whether you can persuade other people to go along with it, that's the that's the other question. But for you personally, that's a that's a, a headcanon I wouldn't argue with. That I will say this: that scene wasn't. It was an outlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I, but it does. It, it sort of raises the. 
it raises the sense of tragedy. Like it, it yeah. almost worked. Like it, it might have almost. Yeah, if he'd, been... if he'd have held on for another <laughs> six months, and but that's the thing. It's like you, it's it's. Do you believe that, um, Allison and Rhaenyra would have patched everything up and become friends again, or do you think that eventually Allison's paranoia, fueled by her father, would drive a, a wedge between them again? You know. Um, life's complicated you know it's you know said. it's like friend, friends friends uh friends have falling outs and they get back together and they, they you know they don't completely mend the fence and sometimes you pretend like you mended the fence you're still i mean that that's what this show is good at and um you know just show that try to show the the human complications yeah to these relationships it's it's helpful in that uh, that scene has a little bit more um, intrigue to me now than I did before, because there are multiple possible readings. Uh, Thirty Seven Elephants is the name of the the next guy, and I think that this is an allusion to Hannibal, who uh, oh, right. brought. Crossing I thought it was thirty thirty eight elephants, but anyway. Um, all right, how uh, now that you have seen the entire first season of Hot D, would you rather? see several more seasons with these characters or would you be more interested in an anthologized series where every season drops us into a different era of Targaryen drama oh man I for one would like to see the this House of the Dragon stuff play out whether it takes two seasons one more season or two more seasons um, but I am, you know, I'm on record as being a huge fan of the anthology idea. I hope they keep House of the Dragon running and they take as many seasons as it takes to tell a classic period of Targaryen history. Mm. And then you jump forward in the midst of time or maybe even backwards in the midst of time and flesh this out. Um, and the, the only thing I worry about is like the, the how much appetite, you know, we talked about the zombie appetite. How much appetite do people have for palace intrigue and incest? Because... You know, there's only so many ways you can dress up the son burdened with the expectations of a father Mm -hmm. and a little girl who wants to be more, you know, a knight than she does a princess. There's and and there's only so many ways you can rearrange that that before. But I don't know, maybe because like what? I mean, if you went all the way back to the doom, you could bring this whole thing to Essos, right? Sure. Uh, That'd be interesting. Or if you want to, like, I mean. I'm not the first person to have this idea, but you could follow Jon Snow up north. He's he's actually a legit Targaryen, right? Yeah, you know that that could actually be a, a different season of House of the Dragon if they wanted well, it. That'd be an interesting way to do the Jon Snow. Just just roll it in as a future House of the Dragon. Okay, this is from Dylan. Dylan writes: If you were Lenore and you wanted to disappear in Essos, where would you go? What would you do to keep hidden? Which Essos culture would be most most LGBTQ friendly? And if you ran out of coin, what would you do for work? This is like the old, uh, sort of variation on the old, like where would you vacation in Westeros if you could? Mm. Uh, but it's 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 sort of Essos themed. I so. There is an interesting like there's two axes to consider here, um, you know, like how free in terms of sexuality and open a society is 
and you know what their relationship to slavery chattel slavery is because some of the most free and inhibit in inhibited societies like lease uh yeah, also are amongst the lease. worst slavers you know they 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 essentially essentially enslave men and women to be pleasure people and serve in pleasure right. palaces and you know that's you wouldn't want to get mixed up there i actually think of all the free cities because like we can also just be like Slavers Bay, you don't want to go there. You probably don't want to hang around at the Dothraki with their stereotypical no. masculine ideals and <laughs> rigid roles for oh, men yeah. and women, right? I think Mir is the place you want to go. Oh. It's long been considered the most advanced of the three cities. It's the one with the most higher education, where education and reason and rationale are, he are held in very high regard. Uh -huh. Um. Yeah, I think I think I think Mir is it's not flashy, but you're probably going to be uh -huh. safe. You're probably going to your autonomy is going to be respected and you're probably not going to be sold into slavery. So that's 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 pretty good. That's pretty good. I was going to say least, but y your point about their view on slavery is well taken here. Um, I, mean, I was just thinking least is sort of more kind of known to be more progressive when it comes to sexual appetite. Mm -hmm. Um, but that, that's a good point. You know, maybe mirror is the play here. And it's also uh, like, I yeah, think... it's like, there's also the distinction between sexuality and sex, because like, you know, if you're uh, gay or you're lesbian or you're, you're trans, like that is a different axis by how much personally you desire sex. Cause you could be an asexual trans person, asexual right. bi person. Like, so like you might be the case that, uh, Oh God! All the sex in my face. It's just uh, I'm I'm personally more conservative in it to, when it comes to my sexual tastes, uh, but my sexual orientation. Is, so like you might be in a thing where you know, yeah. So I, I think I, and again, it's like mirror. It's not that like they don't have slaves. It's just that I think they're the, it's it's the one that's less emphasized and the I, I just like the the fact that they're famed for their arts and learning. That's got to be that's got to be good. So one of the one of the criteria here is that. You got to stay hidden, right? You don't want to be you. You want to stay incognito. Mm. So I think that with with Lenore, you got to keep that head shaved, or you got to have a wig. I think that that's the the key here. Uh, as long as that silver hair isn't seen, probably not going to be clocked as a Valerian. True. What would you do for coin if you if you lived in this world? You had to like make a living in West er, in in Essos, Aaron. What would you do for coin? I mean, if I'm staying true to my calling, I guess I'd try to be I'd, I'd try to be a storyteller, a raconteur. I try nice. to like tell tell. You, you might have to travel from town to town. Yeah, 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 yeah. I might might have a lute or uh, you know uh, what what what's the the medieval guitar? Is it a lute? I think that yeah, I think this is called a, a liar. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. A I, I'd be a bard. That's what I'd be. I'd be a bard. I would, I would sing songs of local legend, and I'd, and uh, I'd learn all the mythology and and weave it together in interesting ways. And I, I just, just you know, go go to tavern to tavern to to get enough coins to to get me through the next day. <laughs> 